Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. I don't care what you say, Gavin. Luton is basically the Newark of London. The only reason anybody flies out of there because it's like $100 cheaper. Ass. The following podcast contains... Profanity, food jokes, and tired comedy references. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you just let any jackass walk on the plane for any reason, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 302, the Fly the Friendly Skyjackers Part 1, the Golden Years edition of the show, where we talk about the golden age of air travel when your flight to Milwaukee might just end up in Havana. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Thinking podcast is brought to you by Unexpected Destinations. Are you looking to get away from it all? Want to do it on a budget and don't care where you go? Then try Unexpected Destinations. For $49.95, you board a plane and we take you somewhere. Could be Boise. Could be Bogota. You don't know. We don't know. That's where the fun is. All you need is your passport and 50 bucks and Unexpected Destinations will take you wherever the plane happens to be going. From Kalamazoo to Kathmandu, dress for any weather and be ready for anything with Unexpected Destinations. $49.95 a flat fare, players only departing flight. Unexpected Destinations does not offer return travel. Your destination passenger, to your destination passengers required sign the ability to waive for arrivals from war zones or nations that do not usually welcome tourists. Full records of any kind of all vaccinations for world travel required boarding. UE does not guarantee arriving destination will not arrest, imprison, kidnap, or execute on arrival. See our brochure for details. Anyway, uh, bearing all that in mind, <laughs> will you fly this plane uh, to Luton, please? <laughs> well, this is a scheduled flight to Cuba. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, that's rather why I, I came in here with that point about nobody oh, moving. Uh, within reason. Within reason. Within reason. <laughs> yes, right, yes. Right. Um, you know, I want you to fly this plane to Luton, uh, please. Right, well, I'd better turn the plane around then. Uh, stand by, emergency systems. Look, I don't want to cause any trouble. No, no, we'll manage, we'll manage. I mean, near Luton will do, you know. Harpenden, do you go near Harpenden? Uh, it's on the flight path. Okay, well, drop me off there. Really? I'll get a bus to Luton. Oh. Right for 25 minutes. Oh, you could be in Luton by lunchtime. Oh, well, that's smashing. Uh, uh, hang on, there's no airport at Harpenden. Oh, well, look, forget it, forget it. I'll come to Cuba and get a flight back to Luton from there. Well, we could lend you a parachute. No, 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 no. No, wouldn't dream of it. Wouldn't dream of it. Dirty and ice cream parachute. I know, I know. There's a bale of hay outside Basingstoke. Right. We could throw you out. Well, it's all right. Sure, yeah. It's not any trouble? No, no, no. no. <laughs> When I was 12, my family packed up and moved to Guam. Guam? Really? I gotta be honest, I had no idea where the fuck Guam was. I kinda knew that it existed. I'd read a bunch of books about World War II, so you know I was aware of Guam, but... I didn't know exactly where it was and why the hell my family would need to pick up and move there. This was, of course, because the Air Force decided that my father was needed for things on Guam, and so we went to Guam. The thing about Guam was, indeed, it is, how very far Guam is away from anywhere, really, 
It's just shy of 6,000 miles from California where we were leaving from. And there were only a certain number of ways one can get to Guam from, well, anywhere, really. Being an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, one could take a ship, which wasn't very practical because... It would take an interminably long time. Or one could take an aircraft, which is, of course, what we did. Now I, being a child from the mountains of East Tennessee, had never been on an aircraft before, and naturally, I had concerns. The plane will crash in the ocean. Well, sure, but that was way too prosaic for a 12-year-old me. I was deeply concerned about being skyjacked. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Look, I watched a lot of old television shows back in those days, and those shows from the 60s and early 70s sitcoms, you got on a plane going anywhere, somebody was going to come along and be all like, We are hijacking this plane to Cuba. Which I knew was also an island, and for all I knew, it was being an island might be near Guam. Look, geography wasn't my strong suit in school, all right? Now, I'm going to caveat the rest of the show by saying right here, everything that I'm talking about took place long before 9-11, and the many, 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 many jokes that I will be making refer to a simpler time when one could just get on a plane to Fargo and have some burnout hippie with a 38 special in his underwear force your plane to land in Havana. Simpler times. I will be avoiding the dark turn old-fashioned skyjacking took in the 1980s and, of course, the early 2000s. So relax. I'm not going to make fun of 9-11. For damn near as long as we have had powered flight, people have realized that airplanes make the ultimate getaway vehicle. In 1919, only 16 years after Orville and Wilbur took that first step into the sky that would eventually become barbaric, uncomfortable seating in flying cattle cars, Baron Franz Nopskov van Felso Slivas, a Hungarian aristocrat, adventurer, scholar, geologist, paleontologist, and albinologist, he is widely regarded as one of the founders of paleobiology and first described the theory of insular dwarfism. He was also a specialist on Albanian studies and completed the first geological map of northern Albania hijacked a plane from Budapest to Vienna to escape the communists in Hungary. Hell, for most of the early years of skyjacking, it was people taking over planes to get out of communist countries and get into the West. <laughs> How ironic. 50 years later, people would be hijacking planes to go to communist countries. It was the 1960s that were the golden age of American hijacking. And it all began with Antulio Ramirez Ortiz. From Encyclopedia.com, quote, On May 1st, 1961, Puerto Rican-born Artulio Ramirez Ortiz, a 35-year-old American citizen, locked himself in the forward bathroom compartment of a National Airlines Flight 337, bound for Key West from Miami. He passed a note under the compartment door claiming that he had a bomb sufficient to destroy the aircraft. Ortiz demanded that the plane be flown to Havana, Cuba, unquote. The flight landed in Havana, Ortiz got off, and eventually the plane returned to Florida. Ortiz, however, did not seem to like Cuba very much because in 1963, he began trying to return to the United States via the Swiss embassy. He was arrested by the Cubans on suspicion of spying for the United States and spent the next three years in a Cuban prison. A few years later, he tried again to leave Cuba, this time by the time-honored method of a too-small boat, and he was caught and spent three more years in a Cuban prison. Finally, in 1972, he made it to Jamaica, where the U.S. embassy was, and asked to come home. And when he came home, he was promptly arrested by the FBI for the hijacking in 1961. How did we not see that coming? 
He was then sent to prison for 20 years. Oh, quick side note. Ortiz would again pop up when he claimed to have worked for Cuban intelligence and had information that one Lee Harvey Oswald was, in fact, a Cuban intelligence asset. The, uh, the FBI and the congressional investigators who heard his testimony dismissed the entire thing largely because, one, dude was doing 20 years in prison and thought they was helping him get out, and two... He is an idiot. The man is an idiot, ladies and gentlemen. And for all, he was indeed an idiot. Ortiz sparked a trend in America, and before you knew it, there were copycats. July 24th, 1961, Eastern Flight 202 from Miami to Dallas, hijacked to Cuba. July 31st, Bruce Britt attempted to hijack a flight at the Chico, California airport, but he didn't want to go to Cuba. Bruce wanted to go to Arkansas. Arkansas? Yeah, it was home for Bruce. His attempt failed, and two airline employees were injured in the incident. In August, two doofuses tried to jack a flight from L.A. to Houston, demanding to go to Cuba, only to have a Border Patrol officer on the plane beat the shit out of them both and break one of their hands during a ground stop in El Paso. And this was all in the first few months of 1961. It was enough to have a new phrase enter the language, skyjacking, after the New York Mirror published it in a headline about the incidents in 1961. Skyjacking would grow in popularity around the world, but here in the States, we went seven years before we had an incident. It wasn't that we did anything important like improve security in the airports or anything. It just sort of didn't happen again until 1968 when a flight from JFK to Puerto Rico was seized and diverted to Cuba. Yep, you guessed it. And that is when skyjacking took the fuck off in America. From a Daily Telegraph article written in 2019, quote, In five years between 1968 and 1972, more than 130 aircraft were hijacked in the U.S. alone, sometimes two on the same day. The startling regularity of seizures at 36,000 feet has led to the era being dubbed the golden age of hijacking. So who was to blame? Broadly speaking, Cuba. So keen were some to share in the bounty of the Cuban Revolution of the 50s that they were prepared to take over a plane and direct it to the South Island some 90 miles from the Florida coast. Take me to Cuba. Soon entered the satirical lexicon of Monty Python among those to create a skit on the theme. Coinciding with the advent of mass air travel, hijackings became common enough that airlines and indeed passengers greeted the act not with fear and concern, but with weariness and acceptance, unquote. The phenomena became so routine that Time Magazine ran a story in 1968 on what to do when you're skyjacked in the same kind of tone one might find in an article describing how to survive the night if your car gets snowed in on the highway. Lying out advice like don't be aggressive, don't panic, don't push the call button, and don't call out for the stewardess. The story details on how to cope in utterly prosaic terms, including how to go to the bathroom, and yes, whether or not the in-flight drink service will continue. I'm quoting from Time Magazine, quote, Captors permitting, there will be normal drink service aboard the plane. In fact, abnormal beverage service may be provided. Aboard Eastern Flight 73, hijacked in November on its way from Chicago to Miami, the hijacker himself bought drinks for all passengers who desired them at a cost of $20. At Jose Marti Airport, you'll be allowed to circulate freely and make purchases at the airport gift shops. Havana cigars, 250 and up, and Cuban rum, $1 per fifth, are the best buys. Neither can legally be imported to the U.S., but passengers on Eastern Flight 73 freely carried both through customs in Miami. 
there'll be little opportunity for sightseeing except during the trip to the airport on buses provided by the Swiss Embassy. At the Havana Libre, the rooms are still comfortable, the service is still good, and Havana still swings a little. You will probably be treated to a nightclub complete with daiquiris and a chorus line and an audience of gaping Eastern Europeans. Shopping at downtown is better. In addition to cigars and rum, bargains include East German cameras and beautifully embroidered Czech peasant blouses. These may also be confiscated by U.S. Customs on your return, but they can be regained on application to the Foreign Claims Settlement Commission in Washington, D.C. Viva la Revolucion, am I right? If Cuba was the most common destination for skyjackers, it wasn't the only one, Arkansas aside. In 1969, the longest and most bizarre skyjacking of them all took place, and it deserves to be told in detail because it is fucked up. So sit back and get ready for the tale of Rafael Minicciello and TWA Flight 85. Rafael and his family arrived in the United States in 1962 after their family village was destroyed in a volcanic eruption. Wow, this is getting good. They settled in Seattle, and when Roff turned 17, he joined the United States Marines in 1967, which uh, was a pretty bad time to join the Marines. He was promptly sent to Vietnam, was wounded in action, and then returned to Camp Pendleton in California, and that's when things started to get weird. Quoting now from HistoryCollection.com, quote, Back in Pendleton, Minichiello came to believe that his unit's paymaster had shorted him $200. His complaints went nowhere, and Minichiello, as touchy and sensitive to slights in the Marines as he had been back in high school, saw this as a great betrayal and intolerable affront to his honor. So one night in May of 1969, he decided to extract his own form of justice. Guzzling eight cans of beer for liquid courage, Minichiello broke into the post exchange where he took exactly $200 worth of wristwatches and radios. Arrested and charged with burglary and theft, Minichiello was scheduled for a court-martial. He saw this as yet another betrayal and a further affront to his honor to add to his growing list of grievances against the Marine Corps and America in general. Once again, he decided to take matters into his own hands and escalating things by ditching the court-martial, the Marines, and the United States. He would go back to Italy. However, instead of buying an airplane ticket, he decided to return to Italy in an especially dramatic way. On October 28th, he deserted and headed to Los Angeles. There, he bought an M1 rifle, 250 rounds of ammunition, and a plane ticket on TWA Flight 85, a blowing 747, bound to, for San Francisco. A handsome huck, Minichiello bypassed what little security existed those days by flirting with some stewardesses and charmed them into letting him board the plane early with them via a secondary entrance. His carry-on luggage included the disassembled rifle and ammunition. Fifteen minutes into the flight, Minichiello reassembled and loaded his rifle and announced his hijacking. Dude, what the fuck? Oh, it just gets so much better than from here. Once he had the plane under his control, he told the flight crew that he wanted to go to New York. Now, a flight from L.A. to San Francisco is about an hour and a half, give or take, and said flights are only fuel for that kind of trip, plus a healthy safety margin, but definitely not enough gas to fly to New York. So began a hopscotch journey that rapidly got ridiculous. 
Minichiello and the flight crew settled on Denver where they would refuel, release passengers, and keep part of the crew as his hostages. So off they flew to Denver. And on the ground in Denver, the passengers were released, the plane refueled, and off they went to New York City with Raphael and five crew members. On the ground at JFK, he announced that New York City was not his destination, but he intended to go on to Italy. Mamma mia. His reason for wanting to go to Italy, again, not making this up, and again, quoting from HistoryCollection.com, quote, There he felt people would understand why getting screwed over $200 was such a grave insult to his honor that it justified the drastic steps that he was taking by way of redress, unquote. This fucking guy, huh? So, the plane took off again. Destination? Banger, Maine. That's where the gas was topped off, and then they flew to Shannon in Dublin, Ireland, where they refueled and then flew on to Rome. And by the time they touched down in Rome, they had been in the air for 19 hours and covered 7,000 miles. Raphael Minicciello was finally home. So, that's it then. You might think that, but no, 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 that's not what happened, because he kept right on fucking going. He escaped from the airport in Rome by taking a cop hostage, stole his police car, then took off with said police car to a small church in rural Italy, where he asked for and was granted sanctuary by the church. He was finally arrested by Italian police on November 1st. As police dragged him from the church, he kept shouting, and again, I'm quoting from HistoryCollection.com, Paese perce mi reste. Countrymen, why are you arresting me? A phrase that went viral as many Italians rallied to his cause. It helped that Minicciello was easy on the eyes and women swooned over his movie star good looks. With that kind of head start in the battle for public sympathy, Minicciello's legal team had a relatively easy time in framing his crime as resulting from trauma he had experienced in Vietnam while earning a Purple Heart. That elicited great sympathy from an Italian public that was growing increasingly appalled by America's pond up in Vietnam, and public pressure got the authorities to go easy on him. At his subsequent trial, Minicciello was acquitted of all charges except for weapons possession. Sentenced to seven and a half years in prison, he spent only 18 months behind bars before he was set free. Upon his release, he signed a contract to star in spaghetti western movies. The movie career did not pan out, however, and Minicciello wound up working as a waiter back at his birthplace of Melito Ipirno. Today, he spends much of his free time maintaining a YouTube channel dedicated mainly to accordion music, unquote. That sounds made up. Oh, really? The videos on YouTube beg to differ. aside, most of the hijacked flights did go to Cuba, and Cuba didn't even want them. All these people. Gringos. From Wired.com, quote, But though Fidel Castro welcomed the wayward flights in order to humiliate the United States and to earn hard currency, the airlines had to pay the Cuban government an average of $7,500 to retrieve each plane. 
He had little but disdain for the hijackers themselves who considered undesirable malcontents. After landing at Jose Marti, hijackers were whisked away to an imposing Spanish citadel that serves as the headquarters of G2, Cuba's secret police. There, they were interrogated for weeks on end, accused of working for the CIA, despite all evidence to the contrary. The lucky ones were then sent to live at the Casa de Transitos, the hijacker's house, a decrepit dormitory in southern Havana where each American was allowed six 16 square feet of living space, the two-story building eventually held as many as 60 hijackers who were forced to subsist on a monthly stipend of 40 pesos each. Skyjackers who rubbed their G2 and caragrades the wrong way, meanwhile, were dispatched to squalid sugar harvesting camps where conditions were rarely better than nightmarish. At these tropical gulags, inmates were punished with machete blows, political agitators were publicly executed, and captured escapees were dragged across razor shop stalks of sugarcane until their flesh was stripped away. One American hijacker was beaten so badly by prison guards that he lost an eye, and another hanged himself in a cell, unquote. But the naive morons in the States didn't know that, and the skyjackings kept on coming. And it was so damn easy to hijack a plane back then. A caveman could do it. Why, I hear you ask, was it so easy to commandeer a commercial airliner anytime you like? Go ahead. Go ahead. Take a guess. It's called capitalism, Mr. Haverford. Give that pod friend a lollipop. The airlines did not want increased security because they did not want to inconvenience their passengers. And more importantly than that, they didn't want to pay for it. Today's airline cargo, excuse me, we're called passengers, is used to the security theater of the TSA, removing every metal article from your body, including, say, surgical appliances, taking your shoes off, standing in the body scanner, and, of course, showing your butthole in the bathroom. No one does. It never happens. You guys don't have to do that. I I've been showing Reginald my butthole in the Terminal B Concourse men's room for about a decade. I was not aware of that. You couldn't get on the plane in the 1960s if you weren't wearing a goddamn butt necktie, but you could bring all the fucking guns you wanted so long as they fit in the overhead bin or the seat in front of you. They would offer to check your long guns like they were fucking golf clubs. God bless America. You could go anywhere you wanted in the airport, even onto the plane, while they were cleaning it, and the worst they would do was politely ask you to leave while they, like they do in the movie theaters today. Which is why any dipshit with a pistol could divert your flight from your cousin's wedding to fucking Cuba so easily. Which I guess, if you think about it, is actually better than attending your cousin's wedding, so maybe that's why it took so long for us to do anything about it. It might have gone on for even longer, capitalism being what it is and all, but one particular skyjacking made the entire country sit up and take notice. On November 10th, 1972, three dudes skyjacked Southern Airways Flight 49 out of Memphis heading to Birmingham. All three of them were wanted on various charges, and their actual story could be an episode of the show in and of itself, but I'll settle for just linking in the show notes for now. And after several stops and demands for cash and destinations changing while the authorities played for time, the hijackers issued a chilling ultimatum. Give them the money and take the plane to Cuba, or they would crash the plane into the nuclear reactor in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. That would be bad. Vaporized, that would be bad. That's when the Nixon White House, via John Ehrlichman, 
who probably should have been looking for a plane out of the country on his own, told the Skyjackers their demands would be met. And after landing in Chattanooga, they received, according to reports from the time, an estimated $2 million in cash, 10 parachutes, 7 bulletproof vests, 7 crash helmets, medical supplies, 50 dinners, and several large canvas bags. And they took off from there to Cuba, who told them to get lost and turned around and flew back to Orlando to an Air Force base where they would refuel. On, the, on McCoy Air Force Base, FBI snipers shot out some of the plane's landing gear in attempts to ground the planes, but the hijackers replied by shooting the co-pilot, and, although the hijackers would later claim that was an accident. The plane, after being shot out with the landing gear, took off again for Cuba, where this time they were allowed to land. It, uh, it didn't work out too great for those guys in Cuba. They spent eight years in a Cuban prison being tortured, and Fidel kept the $2 million, of course. The idea that someone could use an airplane like a bomb scared the shit out of Richard Nixon and America. <laughs> that was some bullshit in 2001 where people were like, oh, no one had even thought of using a plane like that before. What total bullshit. We knew about it in 1972. Anyway, starting January 5th of 1973, passengers had to be screened, their bags x-rayed and inspected for bombs and guns, but they were allowed to board the plane without a necktie, so, you know, you get the good with the bad. From IBM.com in a blog entry about hijacking posted in 2019, quote, In 1974, the Air Transportation Security Act sanctioned the FAA's universal screening rule, forcing U.S. airports to adopt metal detection screening portals for passengers and X-ray inspection systems for carry-on bags, unquote. And the hijacks, boom, done. At least in the States, there were a spate of hijackings in Europe in the mid-1980s by Middle Eastern terrorist groups, and those got pretty fucking grim, and they certainly put the germ of the idea for 9-11 in some very fertile soil, but the golden age of skyjacking in the United States was over for good, but not before the most famous skyjacker of them all had his turn. And that is where we will pick up next week with part two of Fly the Friendly Skyjackers, the ballad of D.B. Cooper. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. This was originally just going to be the D.B. Cooper story until I got to digging around about all the skyjackings and realized I could milk this shit for at least a two-parter, maybe a three-parter if I play my cards right with old D.B., Nothing like having content, and this story has been a freaking gold mine of content. I'm not kidding, though. I really was worried about being hijacked on our flight to Guam, though my parents thought this was silly. I was just being a child, and I'm over an imaginative boy. And you know what? I almost hijacked that goddamn plane just to show them. But that would have been a very smart idea. And speaking of not smart ideas, rate and review this show so others can listen and wonder why you hijacked their podcast feed and took it to Podcast Cuba. Follow the show on the social at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook for a full list of our demands. You can donate to our ransom at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. Every show is early and ad free for just a buck. And we offer a, a wide array of skyjacker loot for just a few dollars more. Every diverted flight is at whatthehellpodcast.com. And we are a proud member of the Celtic Kings podcast network who would never condone us hijacking anything because they are good people 
and they don't even want to go to Cuba. So for me, Dave, don't let me hear life's taking you nowhere, Angel Bledsoe. Producer, that is a lovely place where the nights are warm and the days are spectacular. Gavin and all the fictional comrades of the revolution on this podcast, we want to say we know this flight is bound for Cuba, but we really do need to get to Luton. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.